Chasing Quicksilver by Shannon Douglas. Chapter 6 Hidden Frontiers and Guarded Gates. Copyright 2020. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Genesis 3, chapters 22 to 24. In 1637, René Descartes published his Discourse on the Method of Reasoning Well and Seeking the Truth in Sciences. In it, he laid the philosophical framework for the age of materialism and the rational sciences. As we saw in the last chapter, a collective consciousness will react to threats to its integrity in all manner of ways, like an individual organism reacts to a virus. It was therefore a daring work to publish in the face of the ongoing Inquisition, where views contrary to those of the Catholic Church could be deemed heretical and blasphemous and lead to imprisonment or even execution. Just a few decades earlier, Giordano Bruno, the philosopher and astronomer, was burned at the stake for his heresies after publishing a work on astronomy, and Galileo had been tried by the Inquisition only four years before Descartes published, and was sentenced to house arrest for the remainder of his life. Descartes is famous for making numerous scientific, mathematical, and philosophical advancements in his lifetime, and inspiring others to build upon his ideas. He's credited with putting forward the concept of mind-body dualism and for laying the foundations of what we know now as the scientific method, a process he called methodical doubt. In his first work published, he outlined four principles for evaluating truth in philosophy, the first of which was to accept only as true that which cannot be doubted. His first principle led him to his most well-known conclusion and perhaps the most well-quoted line in philosophy. I think, therefore I am. The full expression of his discovery, derived from his methodology of doubt, is more accurately expressed as, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I exist. He arrived at this through a series of thought experiments as he was attempting to reduce existence to something he could philosophically prove for certain, by radically doubting everything. He imagined in his thought experiment that a terrible demon had set about to deceive him of everything in existence, even to the extent that it would deceive him with respects to his own thoughts, dreams, and ideas. I doubt my thoughts. I doubt my dreams. I doubt my imagination. But I, I'm doing the doubting. I, therefore, must exist for certain. Ironically, this conclusion, that there is unquestionably an I, which exists, closed the door to the scientific exploration of the intangible nature of this I for centuries, because our inner landscape is comprised of intangible and immeasurable currents of non-mechanical force. According to the emerging methods of the time, the only thing that could establish truth for certain was scientific analysis and mathematical proof, and so the door to this was closed. Descartes through his methods, was responsible for establishing the mind-body problem in Western philosophy. He and others like him of the time viewed the material world as mechanistic, and they believed that animals and human beings were simply complex machines. 
They also believed that mankind was unique in creation and had a consciousness separate from the body, while the rest of creation around them were devoid of consciousness, what they called the soul. He believed and expressed that, that man alone among animals possessed this soul. He struggled, as all scientists have struggled since, to explain how these two distinct substances, the body and the mind, interacted with each other. This wasn't a sin of omission on Descartes' part. He was an explorer. Rejecting the rigorous explorations of imaginations, thoughts, and the soul was an act of self-preservation. At the time, science was emerging in response to the limitations of religious thinking and to the control of the collective consciousness of the church. It was extremely dangerous to put forward ideas that might threaten the church, which for centuries had been persecuting and executing anyone who dared contradict the official doctrine. Descartes was so paranoid that he would offend the church and become a victim of the Inquisition that he delayed publishing substantial works in his younger years, and when he finally published at the age of 41, he censored himself, holding back the release of his most controversial ideas so as not to offend the Inquisitors. He included a philosophical proof of the existence of God in his analysis, which, when scrutinized logically, doesn't stand as a valid argument. It seems that he salted his published works with panderings to the church among his scientific, philosophical, and mathematical work to make it seem that he wasn't contradicting or undermining the doctrines of Rome. Some say that later in his life, Descartes arranged an explicit agreement with the prosecutors of the Inquisition in a type of peace treaty. Science would leave the domain of the soul, the I, along with the intangible worlds of thoughts, feelings, and dreams to the church. And the church would accept that science would have dominion over the explanations of the material world, including the nature of the planets and the moon and the stars. This agreement was the source of what we understand today as Cartesian dualism, which has been the subject of scientific and religious debate for almost four centuries since. The idea of dualism being that the physical body and the soul are separate things, one for science, one for religion. The capacities for rational and scientific analysis of nature and of matter have been critical faculties for humanity to develop in the centuries since Descartes' declaration. But we've come to a point where we can no longer ignore the more subtle aspects of reality, Religious dominion over the cultural, moral, and psychic aspects of our lives has long since ceased to be immune from criticism by thoughtful people. The tools of punishment, the stocks, the racks, and the stake are distant memories now, but neither the Church of Reason nor the Church of Rome have any credible understanding of the scape of mind. The young fields of psychology, neuroscience, and cognitive science busy themselves with relative trivialities like, where in the brain do we store memories? and from where do we derive motivation? They focus on the structure of the brain and the mechanisms of mood, but not upon navigating psychic space or upon exploring and optimizing our mental maps of reality. There are many things which exist, one could call them imaginary things or fictional things or intangible things that have substance only in our minds that are extremely important to every modern rational society and person. Even Descartes would have acknowledged that his thought experiment, which took place in the territory of his own mind, was real, had utility, and did not occur in the material world. Money's all in our minds. We exchange paper and coins and now digital bits that we all agree in imaginary space have a certain value, 
A dollar is a dollar, but only because we all agree that one dollar coin and a one dollar bill have that value. The nation is an edifice of mind. It's not defined by borders or a flag. It's a collective hallucination of meaning and structure. It's a set of agreed-upon conditions, criteria, and ideologies that we share. And when we look at a map, the lines on the map that define a country are only imaginary. The debate over the reality and the utility of the mind and the debate over the mind-body problem is a primitive argument. By its nature, it has a set of boundary conditions which give the argument structure and cohesion. But when we step outside of these boundary conditions, the debate ceases to be meaningful. This is like the religious argument or the question about the nature of divine motivation. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? And why does he let good things happen to bad people? The framework for answering this question is religious and biblical and of course presupposes the existence of God. Going outside the boundary conditions of this argument by looking at comparative religions or spiritual views on the questions, or examining this from a scientific, materialistic, or atheistic perspective renders the question incoherent. Descartes laid many of the foundations of the Western Enlightenment, but this presupposition of the duality of the mind and body is distinctly unenlightened. In the memories of ancient India, held within the traditions of Vedanta, we recall that there are three layers to reality, sometimes called the three bodies or the three realms. The three bodies are the gross body, the subtle body, and the causal body. The gross body is the physical body and the material world. It corresponds to our waking consciousness when we're experiencing existence from the perspective of the awake and aware self. This is the lowest order of reality and consists of biological material, tissue, organs, and bones that we're made up of. The physical body navigates a physical world made up of matter. This is the world which Descartes determined he could prove to be real. This world, as we know, operates by certain rules. The rules were derived and proven with science, with measurement, with experiment, and with mathematics. The subtle body is the mental body, the emotional body. This is the domain upon which exist memories, thoughts, feelings, and imaginations. It corresponds to the state of sleeping and dreaming. Our dreams exist here as do our memories, imaginations, and the figures of our unconscious, both the allies and the shadows. This is the domain upon which Albert Einstein conducted his thought experiments, and it's the domain in which exist the spirits, animal guides, and totems which George taught me about in the Arthrology Cafe all those years ago. In Vedanta, these figures of the subtle plane are called subtle objects. The causal body, also known as the causal plane, according to Vedanta, is the backdrop or the ground of existence upon which the lower two orders manifest. It corresponds to the domain or state of deep, dreamless sleep when neither the perception of objects of the material world nor the existence of subtle objects of the mind play upon the field of individual consciousness. One might say that psyche is a personification of this causal plane upon which material and subtle objects play. It's the backdrop of reality and existence, like the screen upon which a movie is projected. In the West, however, we can't even accept and give credence to the existence of the subtle plane, the domain of the forms, the field of memories, and the layers of unconscious reality represented in myth and story that correspond to the structure of our being. This is because 
Western science abdicated its curiosity about the nature of the soul and surrendered its authority over this domain to the church and has never returned to claim it. The door has been closed to these explorations for centuries in what amounts to a wholesale rejection of a significant part of our humanity. We all know it's important to have physical health, and in the domain of the gross, we undertake all kinds of dietary and exercise routines to maintain this. Otherwise, we know we'll be susceptible to illness, disease, and premature death. We've forgotten, however, any kind of mental discipline in the West, and we've only recently begun to remember practices like mindfulness and meditation. The nature of the psyche and the soul is a complete mystery to us as a culture, especially when compared to others. The language of the mind and the structures of the subtle plane are forgotten and have been since the birth of monotheism, when we began rejecting parts of ourselves based on religious prescriptions, decrees, and taboos. The word pagan, for example, as we all know, has negative and even devilish connotations. It comes from the Latin pagus, which means country, or countryside, or country district. Paganus refers to someone from the village or from the country. So pagan refers to rustic or rural traditions. Urbanized, so-called civilized people of the Roman Empire were disconnected from the earth, from the ground, and from the simple life. They were disconnected from the cycles of the moon and the seasons and from the natural fertility cycles and the harvest cycles that the people outside the empire were still connected to. They looked upon these pagans as the unwashed, primitive, and uneducated. It was a way for humans within one psychic field to create distinction between themselves and others and a way of reinforcing group cohesion and identity by rejecting another. This is an early example of classist discrimination, not between fishers and farmers, but between city people and country people. Then, once Christianity had established itself, the word pagan became a heuristic label for dehumanized others who were ripe for assimilation. The meaning of the word came to be associated with earth-based traditions and medicines, anything to do with local or tribal totems or spirits, any language or dialect using different names for God. They were all identified as pagan, and Pegas became a name for the enemy territory. We rejected our innocence by taking of the apple, but archetypally we also rejected our relationship with the goddess we know as the mother of humanity. We severed our connection to her. The biblical account suggests that we were cut off from our immortality when God placed a flaming sword and cherubim at the eastern gate of Eden, but what we, as descendants of the Western tradition, cut ourselves off from was the earth itself. When we left the garden, we became farmers, fishers, and herders with the associated cosmologies and mythic traditions which reflect our relationships to the spirits in our environments. We lived from our toils through those phases. But when we settled in cities and became artisans, butchers, and bakers, we rejected our connections to earlier structures of mind. We did this one stage at a time over centuries until we rejected the earlier minds of humanity completely in favor of the material, mechanical world. Remembering the forgotten structures of the mind means returning to this fertile garden. It means a return to the subtle mind and an understanding of the utility of discipline in the psychic space. Up until a few years ago, the idea of working with and training the mind was laughable to many scientific people in scientific circles. We treated the mind, and still do in many ways, 
as a machine that needs to be fixed with psychopharmacological tools. We've made recent advances in how we understand and measure the physical brain and its functions, and this has led science to conclude, unsurprisingly, that our thoughts and our mental and emotional states have an impact on the body and the nervous system and vice versa. We've begun to develop a new language within certain circles that reflects this growing understanding of the subtle body. Absent a legitimizing framework for working with objects of the subtle mind, which we lost when Descartes rejected the reality of the soul, we've become undisciplined upon the psychic plane. Without any memories of once having maps of this territory, we're largely subject to the chaotic currents of our thoughts, feelings and fears that appear to us to be outside of ourselves and beyond our control. The first step towards reclaiming this territory is to recognize that thoughts, feelings and memories are real things. They make up the ecosystem of our psyches. But we are not. We're not our thoughts, feelings, and memories. I'm not my thoughts. I think thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I experience feelings. I am not my memories. I recall memories. I experience awakened states. I experience dreaming states. I experience the deep, formless void of dreamless sleep. And this raises the question of I in a way that Descartes could or would not. Most of us have been taught our entire lives that the objects upon the psychic plane aren't real. They have no substance, no dimension, no height, length, or width. Yet, if we pause to consider it, we can be sure that thoughts, feelings, memories, and inspirations have an impact on our lives, and that being able to understand and work with subtle objects and to navigate psychic space gives us a greater degree of freedom and power. When we understand that there is such a thing as psychic utility, then we can train ourselves to navigate the subtle plane to shape our experience and to impact the world around us. The traditional Australian Aboriginals called the plane we'll travel together the dream time, a plane of existence populated with heroes, ancestors, and gods, a realm that some cultures believe is more real than reality itself. But if we think about it, any time we're reflecting on the past or imagining the future, we're engaging this dream time function. When we're remembering something, our attention and energies isn't in the present moment. Our attention is in subtle space. It's upon the plane of the psyche. In fact, when you're reading a book or you're listening to a podcast or a recorded audio, you've entered another reality that's separate from material reality. And if I were to suggest that reality is what we pay attention to, then this idea takes on several dimensions. I would further argue that the eye behind the eyes never actually experiences material reality at all. Our perception of reality is delayed from our present moment by 25 to 40 milliseconds. This is how long it takes our nervous system to process external information and salient data and to convert it into signals that our minds can reconstitute into meaningful internal representations in our awareness. This isn't a new argument by any stretch. It was popularized in the countercultural literature from the 1960s. We know from the science research that it takes time for nerves to send signals to the brain. An extreme example might be our perception of the sun. The sun we see in the sky isn't the sun as it is presently. We see the sun as it was approximately eight and a half minutes ago. That's how long it takes light to travel the distance from the sun to the earth. 
Our eyes then convert visible light of the sun as it passes through our retinas and plays upon the rod and cone receptors at the back of the eyeballs and is then converted into nervous signal which is transmitted via the optic nerve to the visual centers of the brain and we then reconstitute or create an image of the sun in the mind's eye. Our conscious minds, the part of us which we identify with as I or me or myself, is delayed. It's delayed from reality. Our perceptions as we understand them are our internal representations of reality and they correspond to how the world exists approximately two-tenths of a second ago. This makes the idea of getting into the now or the, the power of now philosophically challenging and improbable. In addition, human ears can hear a range of sounds, sounds at frequencies above our range of perception like dog whistles or ultrasonic sounds. Sounds below our threshold of hearing are called infrasonic sounds. We see only a very narrow spectrum of the electromagnetic continua, less than 1% of that spectrum in fact. Through science and instrumentation and theory, we understand that the material world is nearly infinitely small and we understand that it's nearly, if not infinitely large but we only perceive the tiniest bit of mechanical, auditory, visual, and physical universe because the rest is irrelevant to our biological evolution and survival. As humans, our senses are tuned exquisitely to the narrow spectra of material reality that is salient to the imperatives of our existence. We're tuned to the spectrums of reality in which we can explore and exercise the three imperatives of consciousness. We explore and expand our environment while we gather food energy, while we procreate, and while we manage threats to our existence. These are the only frequencies into which our sense organs evolved to be attuned. They're the only ones that mattered. What this means is that our sensory perception of reality is very limited, and what we do perceive is not reality at present, but reality as it was a fraction of a second ago. It also means that the only things that we perceive with our naked senses are the things which are salient to our survival in our pre-Eden state. Perhaps this means that the idea of the dream time that came from the Aboriginal culture of Australia is more significant than one might give credence to at first glance. The foundational idea of this argument is that we can never experience reality directly at a conscious level. What we do experience is an internal representation of reality, a hologram, or more descriptively, an interference pattern between the sensed and the sensing, and we assemble these perceptions to create a map of reality in psychic space. We then use this cognitive map to interact with material reality. We perceive the map of reality that we construct in our awareness as reality, but that can't be true. It's only a map that we use to make sense of the world. Most of the time, this map of reality is pretty good, but occasionally we get it wrong. Cognitive science and the study of perception demonstrates this with studies in how people process visual illusions and ambiguities. We've all seen the images of the figures from these studies. Is it a vase or is it a profile of two silhouetted faces nearly nose to nose? The artist, M.C. Escher, was a master of tricking our minds with visual images and paradoxes shifting figures and ground back and forth between this and that. It begs the imagination about the nature of existence if we accept that this subtle plane exists. Do we live in a material world and have perceptions of it, or do we have a wide range of perceptions and our senses of the material world are just part of our larger scope of awareness? 
The school of scientific materialism would teach that the former is the case. I exist in the material universe. I perceive the objective world. The larger school, when we expand the boundaries of the rational domain, and when we can integrate the study of the material world and the subtle world, would suggest that our perceptions of the objects of the material world are only among a wide range of perceptions that we experience. Perceptions of material phenomena are experiences of the external reality. Recalling a memory of a childhood birthday party is a perception of an internal reality, and both types of experiences are unquestionably perceptions of reality itself. Reading this book, or listening to this audio, with the exceptions of a few instances of guided attention to issues in your direct experience, has been a flashlight shining on the subtle plane. When we see the larger picture of the body and mind as part of the same consciousness, nothing needs to be rejected. No boundaries need to be built between them. No flaming swords and cherubim need to be stationed at the gates for those who would like to explore these ideas. The most important aspect of Descartes' idea of I think, therefore I am, is I am. 